Yeah, so good morning to everyone here and to everyone watching online. It's great to be with you. Um, yeah, so th- this is incredible. I'm, I'm actually sitting here, standing here in front of this beautiful wooden thing. It's a pulpit. And my iPad is on it and my Bible's open on it and it's not sinking. This is, this is really incredible. Uh, so yeah, once again, thank you, Shane, for uh, making this for us, for our, for our church as a um, a place where we can um, stand behind the Word of God and proclaim it, because that's the, that's the whole purpose of this, is not just for an iPad, or it's, it's, we stand behind the Word of God, and that's why I appreciate what a pulpit actually means, is that picture. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to First Peter chapter 3. Um, we are going to be moving through the end of chapter 3 today and the beginning of chapter 4, uh, this has been, I think, if you've been with us for a while, a very enlightening, if not challenging, I think very encouraging uh, letter that Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago who were suffering persecution simply because of their obedience to the Word of God. And we have seen some ways in which that persecution is exactly, or in different ways, but happening to the church, to Christians today in our world and culture. It always has it just changes its form because the enemy is sneaky. He is. And so how we respond as Christians is the main thing Peter is trying to get at. And we'll see some more of that this morning. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a caveat up front. We have a long passage to read, and then we're going to look at it. But I want to start by saying that uh, according to most theologians and commentators, this, at least the first five verses, are the most difficult to understand in the whole Bible. No problem, right? Martin Luther, remember him? One of the original reformers, a guy, if you've read anything that he's ever written, never said what he said on screen here about this passage. He said, look at the words, a wonderful text is this, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. How am I going to do this? (laughs) How are we going to do this? It's just true. Uh, Every commentator that I've read has given that kind of caveat to it. However, we are 400 years after Martin Luther, and many, many, many theologians and pastors and preachers and teachers and seminary profs have had their go at this. And so we're going to have a look at it this morning because I believe it's incredibly encouraging. One commentator noted, uh, one that I read regularly, he said this, he said uh, that in all of his years in Sunday school, verse by, he, pardon me, in Sunday school, listening to hundreds of sermons, and as a seminary professor for over 25 years, he wrote, I have never heard a sermon on this passage, nor have I preached a sermon on this passage myself. He then went on to say one of the benefits of expository verse-by-verse preaching, something that he himself did not practice, is that you cannot avoid texts like this. And that's a good thing. It's the whole counsel of God. We should go through it and listen to it and do our best to not just comprehend it, but allow the Holy Spirit to do his work on us. So as I read this morning, I want to ask you, because it's, it's going to go all over the map to a certain extent in the first five verses and then maybe tighten up a little bit in chapter four, but just be on the lookout for this. I believe there's one reason, which we will get to, in this text, one main reason why a lot of preachers and pastors today will not tackle this text. I want you to be on the lookout for it. So let's read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 18. 
through until chapter 4, verse 6. Peter starts with the word for or because. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Chapter 4 begins. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We need to pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this day. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring Peter to write these words to the church in that day. But Holy Spirit, we know, we know that your word is alive and it is fresh and it is meaningful in all times in some way, shape, or form. And so we certainly ask you, I certainly ask you today, would you be the one who speaks to our minds, to our hearts, to our wills, so that we may perceive truthfully what is intended here, what we are to take from this, how this is to help us live the Christian life in this world today. So I pray for your illumination. I pray for your encouragement. And I do pray that you would exhort us, challenge us individually in whatever way we need. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So again, most of you who attend The Rock regularly, you know I don't always have the three-point sermons, right? Because I just sometimes don't see them specifically. and I don't want to make them up. I feel this one was pretty obvious, so the title for your sermon today is Remain Faithful to the End. Peter's communication to the church in Asia Minor in that time, all of the churches in modern-day Turkey today, was to get them to just persevere till the end, to not give up. hope to show you three things in that. Number one, suffer like Christ. Number two, stay true to who you now are. And number three is the surprise ending, which is the one thing. So we'll get to that in the end. So number one, suffer like Christ. Look at the first verse, uh, number 18. I'll put it on, we'll have it put on screen, pardon me. Uh, And we'll look at that first. For or because, as I've already said, Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
So it's important for us to unpack this verse is to understand that it's kind of a conclusion of where Peter has been going all the way from chapter 2, verse 13, until the last verse we looked at last week, which is verse 17 in chapter 3. And it's all about how we as, and he's been focusing on this, and this has been his main point, how we as Christians then and today should respond when being persecuted because of our faith and obedience to God's word. There is a way in which we should respond. Most of us aren't doing that well. They were struggling with it too. He's an apostle, but he's a pastor, and he wants them all to hear this message. In chapter 3, verse 8, Peter encourages them and us to have a unity of mind, reason together, to have a brotherly love for one another. In regards to those outside the church, those who attack us, he was adamant to the church then, as I am today. Do not return evil for evil, but instead bless. Easy, right? Super challenging. Finally, last week, Peter really pressed all this into a crescendo. I love that word. Saying, listen, listen, church. When, not if, but when you are persecuted, canceled, slandered, and reviled, have no fear. Have no fear of man, nor be troubled. Don't let them, the culture, the world, the enemy, really, persuade you to think that what you believe and are now doing with your life must, might be wrong. Don't let that happen. But instead, first, honor Christ, who is holy. And, and so what overall was Peter's point, is his point? Well, if you and I buckle to the fear and stop proclaiming the truth, what we are in effect doing is honoring man and not Christ. That's one of his main points. Then he told us exactly how we should respond. So let's review that. Verses 15b to 16, he said this. In that case, when that happens, and you're seeing that happen in the world, how should you as a Christian respond? First of all, he says, always be prepared. What did I say last week? Yeah, read this. (laughs) This is our instruction manual on how we should be prepared. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that, love those two words, we emphasized those a lot last week. When you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So again, always have a a, a prepared defense for the truth of God's word. For the hope that is in you, who is who? We sang about it today. Jesus Christ. He's our hope in all things. So when you and I have to ask ourselves the question that I asked last week, it's just a question, in this circumstance, whatever it might be, what should I do? Well, apply the words of Peter here. What should I do in good conscience that will honor Christ who is holy? And then do whatever that is, not by, listen, not by battling. And we've seen this. We've seen this repeatedly when the church is attacked. Repeatedly when we feel good doctrine or good teaching of the Bible is attacked. Not by battling it out on social media and ridiculing those who you feel are wrong. But again, as Peter said last week, with gentleness and respect, making a defense for the truth. I leaned on this last week because it's been my biggest struggle in 40 plus years of being a Christian, 
Respect. Respect. That's a struggle. But that's what he's getting at. So back to verse 18 then. We see his conclusion to all this. It's all because what? Well, because Christ also, also once suffered for sins. He, he suffered for you. He modeled this for you and I. Look to him. He's the perfect model of how we should respond when being persecuted because of our faith and obedience to the word. And so that's what we're looking at today. Many scholars, of course, in this particular passage we're in, that particular verse, um, will suggest to us that we see here one example of many in the scripture of something called the great exchange. It is a great exchange. It's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's this. Jesus bore on the cross what you, what you and I all deserve. What? Well, the penalty for our sins, which is death. He bore it. He bore on the cross what you and I deserve for our sins so that we might be given what we do not deserve. Grace, forgiveness, and a restored relationship with our God. Did we deserve that? Do we deserve that? Day by day? Of course we don't. He adds that what Jesus also did was put sin to death in the flesh. He modeled it putting sin to death in the flesh. And again, so that we could be made alive in the Spirit. Before Christ, before you are a born-again Christian, before the Holy Spirit comes into you and regenerates your heart, you are dead. We are dead spiritually. In the flesh, it's what rules us. Our sinful nature is what rules us. Only faith in Christ can make us alive in the Spirit. And not only for now, but for eternity. Once and for all, it's good news, right? It's called the gospel. It's the great exchange. And it's pictured for us here in this one verse. So his point is this. In this life, suffer like Christ suffered. It's it's worth it. I was going to say it's not hard. It is hard. But it's worth it in the end is what Peter is getting at. So how should we respond to trials and persecutions? I would suggest should mirror exactly the way Jesus responded. Read the word. Sometimes he responded to religious elites and Pharisees a certain way. But to most other people, your run-of-the-mill sinners, he responded completely differently, completely differently. And on occasion, he was silent. It's a great model. I need to learn from that last one a little bit more. Anybody else? Knowing when to say something and when not to say something. So Peter is going to come back to this in chapter 4, but let's look at now these very difficult verses. They're going to be on screen. I'll read through them one more time. I'm going to do my best to show Martin Luther it can be done. Here we go. Beginning in verse 19b. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
This last verse, which we'll leave on screen for a second, verse 22, is the main takeaway. So let's deal with that first. It clearly announces this. Jesus, the one who suffered all these things that were modeled for us that we can look at, is now resurrected, resurrected and exalted as the one who is over all. This, in biblical terms and scriptural terms, is called his vindication. It's his victory lap. That's what Peter, to a certain extent, is saying in these very strange verses and in this passage. And, and in that, what Jesus is saying and what Peter is saying is, look, if you and I will submit ourselves to the persecutions and the afflictions and respond correctly, suffer like Christ in this world, a number of things are going to happen. People will be put to shame. People will come to Christ because of our good conscience and our good works and our love for them. And at the same time, listen, you too will be vindicated. You too will be victorious. What is his becomes ours. Again, do we deserve that? Do we earn it because of our good works? No. We respond because of what he has done by doing good works. Now, as for the previous verses, here's what I could do. I could take the next three hours and take you on a theological course, looking at the three or four most popular versions and understandings of this text, showing you the pros and the cons of each one. And trust me, over the last two weeks, I have done this. And it's painful. And so just at this point, um, you're going to want to say to me, as I say to you, I'm not going to do that. Thank you, Pastor. Everybody? Amen. Right? Okay. But here's the thing. If you want to do that, if you would like to dig into that, that's great. Talk to me afterwards. I will send you reams and reams of articles and biblical commentaries to read. And that would be great if you'd want to dig into it. I kind of enjoyed it. I, at the end of it, was like, please, somebody help me with a synopsis here. And I was thankful that several good theologians today have essentially done that. So let me do that for you. Uh, Just three things from this to move on past that. But number one is the reference to Noah. And so this this speaks to the fact that those who trust in Christ have no need to fear that suffering will be the last word. Sometimes in the Christian life, I think what it feels like is like, there's no justice, man. Like, there's no justice in this world. Well, this reference is suggesting, okay, hang on. Yes, there will. Yes, there will. We are like Noah is the point. We are this small remnant in a hostile world, but we can be bold in our witness and confident that, listen, our future is secure. We'll see more about that. Second reference is about baptism. So what about that reference? Well, the water of baptism is like the waters of judgment, the flood waters in Noah's day. As we are immersed into the waters in baptism, we are reminded that we deserve what? Death for our sins. Just like those who died in the flood. And coming up from the water reminds us that we are kept safe in the, and I love this illustration that I found, we are kept safe in the ark that is Jesus and have risen to walk in newness of life because of him. So 
Peter is reminding us that in our suffering, Jesus rules and reigns. When we're suffering, being persecuted, slandered, and reviled, Jesus is on the throne. Nothing changes there. It remains the same. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed. It's done. The enemy is, is destroyed. He's defeated. He's triumphed over sin, Satan, and death. And as a result of all of that, Jesus has done and accomplished. We too, listen, will be raised in new life in Christ today and in eternity. And because of that, we have good reason to hope. No matter what comes into our lives, it's not just persecution and afflictions. It's suffering and suffering in this world called pain and disease and sickness and death. It's the ultimate form of suffering, but we have hope. If we're in Christ, we have eternal and perfect hope. So that's point number one, suffer for Christ. Number two, stay true to who you are now or now are. Chapter four, verse one says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of, look, thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I I added intentionally, um, although it's a long point, I added intentionally who you now are to ensure that we don't adopt the thinking of this world, which is the idea that I'm sure you've all heard about, that the goal in life is to be true to who? Yourself. This relativistic mindset that every one of us has our own truth. Yourself, listen, I'm going to just state it very clearly for anyone here or anyone's listening or watching. Yourself before Christ is not the true new you. It's not. It's not the you that God had designed and intended for you to be. Peter's point follows on from our first point, suffer like Christ, in that since we are now in Christ, being conformed by the work of the Holy Spirit into his image, and since Jesus, while in the flesh, suffered as we do, then listen, arm yourself. That's almost, when I was reading that and I thought about this, it's almost Pauline language, right? It's, It's all about Ephesians 6, right? The full armor of God. Arm yourself. And he talks about the helmet. Protecting the mind and the way that we think. And so it's about having the same mind as Christ, especially in this way. Since Jesus suffered in the flesh and put sin to death, our suffering in the flesh today accomplishes the same purpose. It accomplishes helping us to put sin to death in our lives, which is our sanctification, and it looks like And his encouragement is, think this way about that. Again, when these things are coming upon us and happening to us about, okay, how should we respond or how should we resist that old temptation in our previous nature, in our previous life, the previous way that we walked? Think like Christ. Have his mind about this. In fact, as I've been practicing a lot lately since starting freedom sessions with a group of people in our church, it's about at every moment, at any point in time, just simply going, okay, hold on, hold on, Glenn, Glenn, stop. How you think you should proceed from this point on is probably wrong. Jesus? <laughs> it sounds, I mean, I mean it, it sounds simplistic, but it's, I'll just tell you, 
It's working for me. Stop and listen to his spirit and, 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 and meditate on his word and think about, okay, how then should I respond? How, what would be the way to think about this? What's, what I'm experiencing, what I'm dealing with in my life, what others are dealing with, how I can encourage and bless them. Think his way. He goes on in verse 2 to say this, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the rest of our lives, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in a nugget, he is saying this, our identity then is no longer who we were before Christ saved us. It's not. It's not supposed to be. He saved us from our sins. We are now new creations in him, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live holy and righteous lives. You know, like you're looking at me going, Pastor, did you just say we are able to? I did. It requires constant, constant faith and relying on the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. But it also requires us thinking the right way and thinking, okay, hold on a second. Am, am, I, am I living this out? Am I behaving like I would have when I was Glenn at 22 before I came to faith in Christ at 23 and then actually matured and grew up in my faith at 40? And I'm still doing it at, I'm not going to mention my age this morning, but it's a lot older than that. And so the idea is here we are live in the will of God and not for the old human passions that only lead to death and destruction. I've said this many times before in messages at different times just to say, like, when we look back on our old life and, and we're kind of missing certain things, I just ask the question, how's that really worked out for you? Can, can we just be honest here? <laughs> Has it worked? And most of us who are honest will go, no, no. It's why I actually checked this Jesus guy out and the Bible, and what it teaches us. And so to make that point clear, it's interesting what Peter goes on to say. Look at verse 3. For the time that passed, is in the past, pardon me, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's saying at this point, look, look, just look at it this way. You had your fill of that. Now, some of us in this room, I... I know some of us and all the rest of it, but some of us had more than our fill of that, right? And others have said, well, you know, I, sure, I dabbled in this and that, but, you know, I, okay. No, Peter's asking us all to be mindful of that and to go back into that. And then he says, he gives some examples, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. He wrote these things to them. So if we don't remember our past lives, Peter lists a few of the things that we might have given ourselves to here. Uh, The words living in sensuality uh, is not strictly related to sexual immorality. It is, but it, it has more to do with the root word in the Greek and actually the English, which is the word senses, right? our five senses. And so it refers to our fleshly desire to gratify all of those five senses. That includes passions that we have for everything, listen, to excess. Many of these things are good, but some of us make them passions and they're to excess. 
like sex, like comfort, like entertainment, like recreation, and at the extremes, yes, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and of course the worship of idols in this world that everybody else bows down to. And then in verse 4 he says, interesting words. With respect to this, they, who are they? Well, those are your old friends, people who knew you before Jesus, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Hmm. So here we have one of the main reasons why I want to suggest to you we are maligned, slandered, and reviled. When when you begin as a new creation in Christ to start to pass on the invitations from others who've known you before or from your office, whether it's friends in college and university, family, whatever it might be, and you start to reply to them and say, you know, well, thank you for inviting me, but yeah, actually, no, I, and, and you're actually, you don't want to lie and say, I've got, I, I had other plans, right? But you're just like, well, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I can do that or want to do that. So, you see, in our minds, it's, it's just like, we're just thinking, well, that's no longer for me. But listen, and maybe some of you have experienced this because I have really experienced this in my life early on when I became a believer. Many people, in their opinion, believe it's because you are now judging them. I had three of my best friends at 23 years of age, guys that I went to school with. I had a business with one other fellow, and, and they... Uh, you know, I, listen, I didn't become a Christian and all of a sudden become holier than thou and start preaching at them. I didn't. Oh, I wanted to, but I didn't know how. I just started declining. And then occasionally I would say, well, yeah, no, listen, I, I, like, guys, I just don't want to do that anymore. Well, why? Well, it's, I just don't think it's right, okay? It's not, it's not right. And I wouldn't just say it's not right for me. I just said it's not right. And they, they just assumed that I was judging them and, um, yeah, they, they didn't want to be my friend anymore. And it was very difficult. Very, very difficult. Anyone experience that? Don't put up your hand. Just think about it. <laughs> okay. I love you all. Those words are interesting, aren't they? Flood of debauchery. It's very strong language. Peter wrote it. And so I want to ask you to remember this, because sometimes we forget this, guys. We forget this. This letter was written to those churches, and it was read aloud on Sunday mornings in those churches. And and probably because they didn't get a lot of letters, and that's all they were basically looking to, although their elders would sometimes be taking them into the Old Testament and Isaiah and various other places and showing them how this all pointed to Jesus because they were now learning all the gospel points about Jesus, and they would be teaching that too. But they'd get these letters, and then they'd read them aloud, and then they'd read them again the next week. Why? Because they'd do the same thing that we're doing now. People would leave after the first reading and go, what did that What was he saying? And so the elders would read it again, and they would then go through it and break it down, and they would have discussions about it. They would reason together, right? They would speak about it home to home. But here's the other thing that might have happened. That could happen today. Would you maybe assume that it's possible some of them might have invited some of their friends and family to church who didn't believe in Jesus yet? And they would hear this, being read in the gathering. And at some point, they'd be going, hold on. 
Peter is saying that my life is a life of debauchery? One of two things can happen when that happens. A person can be cut to the heart and go, oh my, I think that's true. I've seen the change in my friend's life. It's actually quite remarkable because they were worse than me. Or, what's that all about? That's, they're talking about me that way. And maybe leave and share that with their friends and say, you know, these crazy Christians, they're actually, you know, this is what they're being taught. This is what they're thinking. Because do, do you actually imagine that in that day what was happening is most of these Christians were running out in the marketplace and standing on a pulpit and screaming at the, the culture about that? I don't think so. It, we have no evidence of that, except for Peter and John in the early book of Acts. So that must have happened. And listen, what did that lead to? It's in our text. They're maligned. They're maligned. That's where it comes from. And so the second point, again, is stay true to who you now are. That's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's going to be a challenge for all of us. Let's go on. Point number three. Here it is. Surprise. Fear God. Fear God, not man. 1 Peter 4, 5, and 6 says this, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. So will you, so will I. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this, as I've already alluded to, is the primary reason why a text like this is avoided today. It's just avoided. The totality, actually, of our whole text today from chapter 3, verse 18, until what we just read has been leading to this point, and it's leading to the subject of judgment. The final judgment of every soul after death before God. One commentator put it this way about this subject today. The church has gone from preaching judgment and hell to exclusively preach... Let me repeat this because it's important. The church has gone from preaching judgment and hell to exclusively preaching the love of God. I want to make a point here. I, I, I read broadly when I read commentaries. I read what I know are solid, reformed-ish commentators who I trust, but I also read others who are... You know, maybe there's certain things that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're still pretty solid. And so this is one of those commentators. He went on to tell an account uh, or an anecdotal story of a woman who was at a gathering he attended, who sadly, at one point during the discussion period, um, sadly depicted uh, the church she grew up in as always being a church that preached hell, the devil, and judgment. She called it fire and brinestone. No, you heard me right. (laughs) She called it fire and brinestone. She then went on to wax eloquently about her current church that only focused on the love of God, loving God, and loving others, period. And he said, and I agree to this, There have been and may still be today churches where hellfire is preached incessantly. Yeah, there are. 
they're somewhere in the Ozarks, but they are, okay? That's just not true, broadly speaking, today. It's just not true, broadly speaking. So we must, however, look at this carefully because Peter intended that they understand how critical this is to their continuing in the faith and the gospel that they might share. Peter's letter is actually might be a little confusing to some of us on that subject, right? Uh, didn't he say last week, do not fear? Right? He said, do not fear. Jesus actually several times, do not fear. Last week, of course, was do not fear man. In the first chapter, in verse 17, Peter said this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's a different kind of fear, and the subject is different, isn't it? Later, he said in chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor, honor, honor. Well, God should be honored too, but his point was fear God. There's a point in Matthew 10 where Jesus has sent the disciples out, um, the apostles, um, and, and he warns them that he's sending them out as sheep into a slaughter, basically. Uh, they're, they're, some of them you know, could be killed or whatever. They're going to be persecuted and maligned for sure. And, and repeatedly through all of that, he's, he's essentially saying to them, listen, don't have any fear over them. Don't, don't fear these people. Don't fear what they're going to do, what they're going to say to you, whether they'll invite you into their homes or not. Um, just, just understand nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And, and what I tell you in the dark, speak about that in the light. Do that. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And then he said these very important words to them. And do not fear those who kill the body but can't, cannot kill the soul. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who knows his Father and the Spirit very well. He said, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, so the problem that this poses for many Christians today has, for many centuries, quite frankly, is born out of a, I'm going to suggest, soft or sanitized view of God of the Old Testament. The, the picture for some of us, some people, of a wrathful, angry God who punishes evil, which is, I want to suggest to you, justice in his eyes, it's a struggle for Christians. And, and listen, Unless you're completely hard-hearted, come on. That should be a struggle. Of course it should. So if you are to ask any hard-hearted atheist, on the other hand, about the God of the Old Testament, they're going to tell you straight up that in their opinion, and this comes from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, he's a monster. That was their conclusion of reading the Old Testament. See, it's amazing to me that oftentimes people, atheists, can read the Christian Bible and go, you're fudging it. In plain, simple language, I can tell you what it says. And so what happens sometimes for many believers, 
is that we begin to fear that opinion. We begin to question that. We begin to like, oh, yeah, we know how you feel. And oh, now and we begin to look for ways that maybe what Jesus did when he came was to give God a makeover. I've read and heard that in certain circles. And so it makes the subject of judgment really hard to talk about with people, right? Let alone preach on a Sunday morning. In our Life Journal plan so far this year, which we've been going through, super encouraging. So many, many of you have been doing that with us. We've already read two significant examples in the Old Testament of God's judgment and wrath upon evil. Noah. We just read about it today, right? In plain language, it's this. God wiped out every human being and animal on the planet because he'd had enough of evil. He judged it. He was going to wipe out everything. And then he found one righteous man. And so he was going to wipe it all out. And he brought them into the ark, Noah did. But God did do that. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't evolution. It wasn't just a freak storm. He did that. Then later, there's the Passover when God passed over the homes of the Israelites who'd placed the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their doorposts, saving them if they had done that, which is a picture of, yeah, the blood of Christ. And then God punished Pharaoh and the people of Egypt for their evil against the people of Israel by, by killing, by killing every firstborn child and animal of the Egyptians. This is our God. He is just. He will judge the living and the dead. So Peter is reminding them of this and us today, and the question has to be, why, Peter? Why, Pastor? Well, first, he wants those Christians in Asia Minor to persevere. Persevere in their own faith and walk with Christ to not lose heart, to remain faithful to the very end. And listen, he, he also knows what every preacher knows. I said this a few years ago in a sermon. It was taken completely wrong. So please hear me. Every preacher knows this or should know this, that on any given Sunday, and Peter knew this in the churches in, in Asia Minor, and that's why he's writing this, that there are people in the room who are saved, who are born again. There are people in the room or watching online who are not, but think they are. And there are people who are just not. I don't know. By their fruits, you'll know them and all those other things. And so you hope and you, 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 you think you know, but I don't know. Your heart, only God does. And so the point of preaching the gospel and pe- preaching these things is that we will all hear this. We will all hear this. And we will examine ourselves. And that's exactly, I believe, what Peter wants. Because you do know also that Jesus told a story about Judgment Day. Where he said some would come before him and say, look at all the great things I did. Look at all the sermons I preached. Look at all the good works I did. And Jesus said, what? I never knew you. Examine yourself. That's his main point, to the believers in that place. Second, it is to remind us all 
that we're here, you and I are here as believers in Christ, born-again Christians for one reason and one purpose only, really? And that is to proclaim the gospel of salvation to those who are lost and dying in this world. That's That's why we do this. That's why we're here. So my question, questions for all of us in conclusion this morning are a few things, but please hear me. When was the last time that you actually thought that I actually thought in my mind about the end and final destination of our closest friends, relatives, neighbors, and coworkers? When when did we wake up in the morning and go, today is the day that that person might die on the highway? Next question. Has my or your fear of man of persecution made you hesitant to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, including judgment to those same people. Are we fearing too much or not fearing rightly enough? I borrowed that from a good book that I read. Are we more concerned with our comfort and reputations than honoring Christ and their salvation? Will we love them enough to fear for them and warn them? I'm asking myself these questions. I think Peter wants us to reflect on these questions. The consistent testimony of the New Testament is that if we have the appropriate fear for them and of God, we will boldly proclaim the truth. We will. And we will do it, yes, in love, respectfully, gently. We will preach and proclaim the gospel. And... We will speak it out boldly, and we will not be ashamed. Amen? Let's pray.